So, so welcome back to uh, welcome back to the afternoon session uh, here today. Um, so we've had a more morning program in which we were establishing the facts. I think we heard a lot of facts. I don't know if you heard all facts. I think there's still a lot of research that that can be done. Uh, now, uh, in the after lunch session, we will start with uh, a keynote uh, a keynote uh, lecture by David Lipton first Deputy Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund. Um, and then we will um, move to a panel debate. Um, uh, and the panelists are sitting already, I think, here uh, on the panel. Um, and, um, and, you know, have, have two rounds of discussion here um, on the panel. But we also want then, of course, to bring in uh, your questions, your remarks, uh, your comments, so that we have a proper, proper debate also with the audience. So, um, David, uh, thank you so much for coming today, and uh, it's it's really uh, a pleasure to to host you today. And I very much look forward to your uh, keynote lecture. Thank you very much, uh, Guntram, and it's a pleasure to be here. And let me start by saying thanks to Bruegel for uh, hosting us all today to talk about this uh, very important topic, and a topic I'm sure is going to be with us for quite a long time. Over the past year or so, we've been thinking a lot about how to respond to the rising criticism of globalization. Despite the many benefits that uh, come for rich and poor alike, the downsides of globalization have generated a very powerful political backlash. And that's forced policymakers to ask how to address uh, discontent and what to do for those who've been left behind. We face a similar conundrum when we talk about migration. The issues taken center stage here in Europe as tensions have risen over both the longstanding flow of migrants from Eastern Europe and the newer flows from the Middle East and Africa, including many refugees. My main message today is that the politics and the scholarship on migration are at odds. While scholars have long debated the economic costs and benefits of migration, and there may still be some disagreements, a consensus has emerged that migration is beneficial. I'll return to this point a bit more in a minute. But the rising tide of populism in the United States and Europe over the past few years is that there's a pronounced negative verdict on globalization. Uh, it's the pub public opinion really has drawn a very harsh judgment about migration. Over the, over the last uh, year, this tide of public opinion has swept away some leaders in, in some countries and it threatens others. So just as with globalization, economists and policymakers ought to pause and consider why public opinion seems to reject the positive conclusions of research on migration. Some reconsideration may help us to develop a deeper understanding of these issues and, and uh, of uh, our analysis and perhaps better refine the policy messages that we put forward. There are three possible explanations for the strong public reaction. First, people may be placing less value on the economic benefits that we've identified from migration because they dislike the social 
uh, and cultural changes that they fear inevitably is going to come with immigration. Secondly, it may be that they don't perceive the real benefits of, um, that economists have shown actually exists. Or third, it may be that economists haven't figured everything out. Uh, I think probably there's an element of truth in each of the three uh, factors. Now, surveys about migration tell us that um, fear of crime and the threat to culture or to national identity show up as powerful forces uh, in public opinion. Political scientists tell us that uh, the reaction to these perceived threats is an expression of profound insecurity. Uh, we as economists must not uh, discount uh, those views, those aspects, but at the same time, uh, we don't really we have to admit that we don't really have an easy way to factor them into our analysis. So let's step back and ask the question, what can we say about the economics? The economic argument that immigration is damaging comes largely from a very simple observation. Uh, by raising the supply of labor, it exerts downward pressure on wages, harming native workers, at least those of similar skill levels. The popular antipathy to, to immigration most often relies on this perspective, which is essentially what you might call a partial equilibrium view. People see immigrants come into their community and believe that they and others in their communities face worse job prospects accordingly. Many have uh, particular experiences in the workplace that reinforce for them this view. The economist's response, of course, is that uh, that labor supply argument requires that all else be held constant and it's surely other things aren't constant. Most arguments that immigration bring benefits point to one or more factors not held constant, in other words, to what you might call general equilibrium and dynamic effects. Among those uh, commonly uh, we, we hear, immigrant workers may complement rather than substitute for native workers. Immigrants will surely spend much of what they earn and thus they raise the demand, including the derived demand for labor, thus boosting wages and creating jobs. Businesses will eventually invest to better equip immigrants with capital, raising productivity and reducing downward wage pressure. And native-born workers will retrain and attain higher paying jobs, or they'll move to places with stronger labor markets. The literature has identified many such factors that in theory uh, can generate benefits and has shown that in fact they actually do. But regardless of this broad agreement among economists about the benefits of immigration, the partial equilibrium view has currency in the realm of, pub the realm of public opinion. And this currency I think doesn't represent an entirely peculiar or isolated reaction. In fact, much of the skepticism on migration bears a striking resemblance to skeptical views on international trade. Those of us trying to understand the economics of immigration in order to shape policy proposals ought to reflect on this congruence in the debates on immigration and trade. First, like trade, even if immigration brings net benefits to an economy, it may generate winners and losers. Second, just as trade leads over time to specialization, 
in line with comparative advantage. It may take time for the dynamic effects of immigration to take hold as they depend on adjustment by businesses. So there may be losers, if only for a while. And third, just as with trade displacement, affected natives may need to retool or move to become beneficiaries of migration. And fourth, and perhaps the most relevant right now, when many things are changing in the global economy, workers may not be able to discern which change is responsible for the decline in their living standards. We've come to recognize a paradox when we talk about trade uh, and globalization, that while the political debates in the US and Europe place much of the blame for sluggish wage growth and rising job losses on the globalization of trade, we suspect that much of the impetus actually comes from the powerful and lingering effects of the global financial crisis and from the persistent incentives for labor-saving technological change. So this is, uh, I think, a key message. The, the economic benefits of migration are well-established. But as we're, as we're doing in the broader debate around globalization, we also must recognize that more work uh, should be done, and by that I mean more scholarship on this topic, particularly to obtain a clearer picture of who may be hurt by migration and how we can mitigate those impacts. As we review what we've learned from research and from the experiences of migration, let's be careful to sort out what holds in theory, what seems to hold in practice, and how confident we are about our conclusions. As in the discussion of the globalization of trade, we should try to cast light on this subject in order to guide policymakers in their tasks. But as in the trade debates, we should also be frank about winners and losers, transition periods, retraining and relocation needs, and the impacts on fiscal finances and welfare programs. In essence, we need to be frank about the politics of migration. This admonition holds, uh, should hold for academics, uh, examining the rapid changes brought by immigration in this century, as well as by governments grappling with the policy changes that these flows have brought in their wake. It certainly applies to us at the IMF. The fund's undertaken considerable work on the economic impact of migration in recent years. You heard this morning from my colleague, Anna Elena, on the implications for the sending countries in Eastern Europe. Let me take a minute to review briefly our findings on receiving countries. Our own work aligns with the view that uh, the economic impact of migration on receiving countries is, is generally positive. For instance, we've found that immigration has significantly increased GDP per capita in advanced economies because skill levels and complementarities boost labor productivity, and because in some places, as was discussed in the, in the opening session, an influx of working-age mig migrants helps counteract labor shortages arising from demographic developments. We also find that although the top 10% benefit the most, the gains from migration are shared across all income groups. Moreover, inequality does not increase as a result of the entry of migrants into the workforce. 
And lastly, we find no significant negative effects on the middle or the lower income groups in receiving countries. All of these are empirical results based on information to date. We, along with other researchers, need to be prepared to re-examine our findings as experience accumulates, especially where we're now seeing large net, uh, new net flows into Europe. We'll need to continue to re-examine our findings and look at new issues. For example, we've concluded that both high and low-skilled migrants can raise product, labor productivity in receiving countries. It seems clear that high-skilled migrants bring in knowledge, increase innovation, and boost the productivity of native-born uh, counterparts. But lower-skilled migrants can increase efficiency by taking jobs where applicants are in short supply. Our studies also suggest that low-skilled migrants can benefit their native-born counterparts by prompting increases in skill levels across the board. We need to examine whether this effect is as certain or as significant as the effects we've found for high-skilled workers. We know that there are social and economic forces at work now whose impact may only become clear in a longer-term time frame. For example, some studies in the US show that migrants have negative wage effects on earlier gener previous generations of immigrants uh, and on native-born high school dropouts. Others show that immigration reduces the number of hours worked by native-born teenagers. We had a look at whether those effects are manifest in Europe as well. The assimilation of migrants into uh, receiving countries' labor markets has been a topic of considerable research. This process of integration is critical if countries are to secure maximum economic benefits from migration. We already know that, the Eastern, Europe that uh, Eastern Europeans, the focus of this conference, by and large, have integrated uh, well and have integrated rapidly. But policymakers will now need a clearer understanding of the assimilation experience of refugees and migrants from the Middle East and from Africa. We'll also need a clearer picture of how second and third generations from earlier cohorts of immigrants are faring, particularly those from developing countries. There are comprehensive data sets from individual receiving countries, for example, a very good data set from Norway, but more work in this area could help help us determine which policies are likely to be most effective in promoting integration. Beyond our research, we also want to help countries devise appropriate policies. We know that governments can greatly affect the short and long run impacts of immigration from selection criteria, settlement services, work rules, educational opportunities, to related cultural policies uh, that have a bearing on assimilation, government policies may swing the balance between favorable and unfavorable economic as well as social experiences with migration. I don't have the time to delve deeply into those issues today, but let me say a few words about the social welfare programs and, uh, and about government finances. Clearly, determining the right balance of social welfare policies to avoid moral hazard and welfare shopping will require a detailed understanding of, mig of the migrant experience and of the structure of incentives that they face. 
social welfare policy is a sensitive policy uh, for groups in the native-born uh, uh, labor force. They often feel that their lives have be been made much more difficult by migration. We know from uh, uh, anecdotal evidence that part of the backlash against the European Union at the time of Brexit came from perceptions of a misalignment of social benefits. Unemployed workers in the UK complained that they had to wait to obtain benefits after they lost their jobs while new migrants had immediate access to government support. This is just one example of where a better understanding of the impact of migration on native populations could help redefine policies and perhaps reduce social tensions. But that said, surveys and papers already suggest that there's a broader range of issues in which uh, poorer natives feel that they're in direct competition with migrants for limited welfare resources, whether that's uh, public transport, health care, uh, overcrowded schools, etc. So a message here is that in light of the current political context, it's essential to obtain a more granular understanding of the development set in motion by increased migration, certainly in labor markets, but also in the broader community and the broader economy. I can assure you that as a learning institution, the IMF would benefit from research in this area. And I can assure you that we'll continue to conduct that research. These are all important issues that call out for greater clarity. I speak uh, today as, uh, uh, from my institution as one who answers to our constituency, our 189 member countries. It's a constituency that faces challenges from migration that in some instances have uh, reached uh, stress or even crisis proportions. <coughs> Governments in Europe and elsewhere are making decisions that will have repercussions uh, well into the future. It's our job to help countries uh, come up with uh, policy responses in real time as countries take steps uh, that are necessary to bring migrants into the mainstream. But we also have a responsibility to help these countries chart a course that will bring economic benefits to all their people and deal with disadvantaged groups among the native population. So as with the trade issue, I think that means taking stock of any negative impacts of migration and considering uh, policy responses. Thank you very much. So, so since David cannot stay until um, the end of our, our panel, um, I suggest that we take a few questions um, directly to David and then we turn to the, to, uh, to the panel debate. So is there any questions to um, uh, what we've just heard? Please, please raise your hands. I mean, per perhaps I, I start off since no, nobody volunteers. Um, I, I think it's quite uh, your speech was quite remarkable in the sense that um, you you acknowledge quite openly that there are in fact there can be losers of immigration as there can be losers of uh, of globalization, and that seems to be um, a policy shift. Um, it, it, is it true that um, there has been a lot of rethinking in your institution? Um, on these on these questions, um, 
let's say, following recent elections. Because um, a few years ago, it, it would have been, I mean, quite quite remarkable to hear the deputy first first managing director of the IMF say, "Well, globalization actually also has some people that that potentially can can lose." Well, I think we've been talking about this uh, for a year or so, uh, as we saw the discontent over uh, globalization rising. I was struck by the chart this morning that showed that, uh, Stefano's chart that showed that the amount of migrants in Europe is essentially at the level that it was in uh, 2007. Frankly, that leads me to suspect that um, there are, as I said in the speech, other factors that are uh, hard, that make it hard for people to discern what's causing a problem. Um, in 2007, before the financial crisis, the U.S. and European economies were doing very well. And so while there were uh, you know, just as many migrants, it was in a setting where that wasn't so upsetting. Uh, now uh, it's hard to discern whether it's uh, those levels of migration or um, the strains that have come from other things that are going on. But surely we understand at the IMF, as, as politics seems to be changing in so many countries, that we can't simply um, focus on globalization and growth. We really need a dual focus, which is how to try to help countries continue to get the benefits of globalization. And I think that does mean uh, for many, especially in the developing world, uh, faster growth, faster convergence in living standards. Um, but if that process is to be sustained, we have to say to the, the advanced economies, and the discontent is essentially in the US and Europe, uh, let's talk about why there's this discontent. Presumably it comes from uh, real people who are feeling um, uh, some uh, disadvantages. We, we'll have to sort out what's causing the problem. And as I say, it may be to some extent misplaced uh, perceptions. Uh, we have to talk about what countries can do uh, to affect um, uh, the pub public opinion and what it makes sense to do, what it makes sense to do that, you know, that doesn't cause some kind of moral hazard or other, or other problems. So I think it's, uh, there's an analogy, very much an analogy to the migration um, issue. I think we ignore the discontent of the native population at our peril. Okay, I see, uh, I see a question here, and then the gentleman here. <coughs> Thank you. Um, is that all? Yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mike Stanick from the Salvation Army Europe. I too was interested um, that we have spoken earlier on this morning, but you also highlighted it yourself, about the winners and the losers um, of migration. <coughs> Um, my concern is, or our concern within the Salvation Army, is that there is another group of losers in that respect that is being largely overlooked within the European Union, and that is the um, undocumented migrant, the, file, the, the failed asylum seeker, or those who have um, come through into Europe through irregular means. Because that is your next, or our next, humanitarian <coughs> crisis, if you want to say it like that, that is hidden, because that number will continue to grow as the number of migrants or refugees coming into the country are re rejected in, in their seeking of asylum. I wonder how does that compare with the, the USA um, with regards to the numbers of, um, uh, or the percentages of those that are uh, 
re rejected and, and do not return home. So how are they then looked after? No, I think it's a very good question, a very pertinent one. You know, the United States uh, has long had this mix of uh, uh, what's called documented and undocumented aliens. And uh, a lot of the um, antagonism towards migration in the United States focuses on the undocumented. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it has been a very large uh, uh, number of people, especially uh, people coming from Mexico and Central America. Um, and since it's gone on for a long time, I think it's, it, in a sense, gives you a preview of coming attractions in that in the United States, people come, their children born in the United States are automatically American citizens. They go to school and become very settled in the, in the uh, community. Uh, and yet the, the um, um, antipathy to the presence of their whole family remains. And we saw in the last presidential campaign that this became really a rather central question. Can you pick up 11 million people and send them home when uh, they have developed roots and uh, have children who are U.S. citizens and so on. So I think that it is, it can be a very complex, pro in the United States where people have not really been eligible for many uh, social welfare benefits if they're not documented. Um, uh, it can become a very complex question of how you, how you make public policy and how you uh, treat those individuals. I think there's a, uh, it's well worthwhile trying to uh, uh, sort out and make sure that there are, uh, uh, I mean, I don't think we have any simple answers, but that there are a set of policies that properly distinguish the two categories. Uh, and, and I think uh, it's a fair warning from the U.S. case that if you simply let uh, the problem be, it may become uh, more, more complex in 10 or 15 years. Okay, then there was a gentleman here. Hello, uh, Nico Keppens from DigiDefco, European Commission. In 2015, the UN members have adopted the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. They were explicitly called universal goals. Would it help if um, measures policies in the context of migration would be used under that umbrella in order to show the citizens that indeed the benefits are supposed to be for everybody on this world? And, and then, as such, uh, lower down the perception that it is negative migration. Because the, the, the member states guarantee that all people living in, in, on Earth will have those benefits of the 17 goals. So this is an appeal to make something, to, to have more communication on those SDGs in order to create a bigger context. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think that's a good comment. I don't really have anything uh, to add to that. Okay, I think there was a third one here. Yes, thanks. Um, I just want to pick you up on your, op your opening, or one of your opening statements about migration being a net benefit. And given the world that we live in, on what basis are you sort of measuring that? Because if you look at the US experience, and to be honest, I don't know what to tr trust these days, but you know, in terms of sort of wage growth and real income growth for certain parts of the economy, it's not been very strong, and in, in, in fact, stagnant in some areas. So how are we sort of qualifying, how are we sort of backing up that statement today that it's been a net benefit for whom and for, you know, in, in what ways? Yeah. I was making the observation, I think it's a fair one, that the economics profession has pronounced a, not a consensus, but a near consensus, that if you isolate the effects of migration, 
the effects are positive. Now, that's not to say that every place that has uh, uh, that receives migrants is going to thrive, because there are other problems that uh, that they may be experiencing. But I think the professional opinion is that migration on net is positive. The whole point of my talk was to say that even if we believe that, we shouldn't conclude from that that there are no uh, uh, that, that that net benefit isn't a, a, a tallying up of some benefits and some costs. I think there are and we have to uh, take account of those if we're going to deal with the political ramifications of migration. Now one could question and there are some scholars who question whether um, uh, migration on net provides benefits but I think the consensus opinion mainly because of what I've called these these uh, general equilibrium and dynamic uh, effects are that uh, migration is positive. The observation that you make that uh, uh, um, uh, wage growth in the United States for several decades has been sluggish is a very complex subject. The question of why productivity growth in advanced in the U.S. and in advanced economies has been declining is a complex subject, but I don't believe that it's dominated by um, uh, migration trends. So, so if you allow, we have one last uh, question and then we have to, I think, move to the panel. You have to leave also, please. Thank you very much. My name is Mohammed Rajai Barakat. My origins are from the Middle East, from Jordan and Palestine. Uh, I noticed that when we speak about migration, we speak always about migration from the south to the north. And we never speak about migration from the north to the south. Mm. When you see, when you take well, here in Belgium, I don't know how exactly the percentage of migrants who are living here in Belgium uh, who are originally from uh, third world countries. But when you take some countries like uh, Dubai, uh, Emirates, Arab Union, you have 10% of nationals and 90% of migrants. And it seems not to be a problem for them. Other countries like Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and others, you have more than 40 50% of migrants uh, who are working there. Uh, don't you think that we have to, uh, so as not to have populism here in Europe and so as not to have problems with people concerning migration, uh, so as not to have more racism, yeah. don't you think that we have, when we speak about migration, we have to speak about the advantages and about the migration from the north to the south? And uh, I have another question about what, had, what I heard this morning. When I hear about uh, cultural integration and the difficulties we have, I think that we exaggerate a lot. I live here, and my origins are from the other countries. I met some people who are working, for example, in Jordan or in Arab countries. I think now, with the globalization, with internet, we don't have many, dif uh, many differences on uh, cultural levels. Uh, maybe 30 years ago, uh, I can't speak about uh, Arab culture, but now it's a mix of many cultures, even in Arab countries. When I arrived here uh, 40 years ago, so as to study in Belgium, I was integrated directly. And now I think it's more easier for people to be integrated. Okay. I think we, we make it a problem, and it's not really a true problem. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think you make good questions. On the, on the second question first, uh, I, you know, there are certainly many good integration experiences, but I think we can't deny that there are countries, whether it's in the United States where there's 
just been in the last presidential election, a lot of discussion that includes uh, quite uh, hostile reactions uh, that are cultural and religious based, or uh, countries in Europe where uh, the prospect of people with other cultural backgrounds and religious uh, beliefs is viewed as uh, uh, in some way uh, uh, challenging or unwelcome. Um, on your first point, I think you make a, a, a very useful reminder that the patterns of migration are quite complex and, and it's not as simple as uh, Eastern Europe to Western Europe or the Middle East uh, and North Africa to Europe. Uh, as you point out, a number of Middle Eastern countries, especially those with labor shortages, have long welcomed uh, immigrants. And there, the, um, while the experience has many complexities, including the cultural complexities, clearly from an economic standpoint, it has been welcomed uh, in the receiving countries. In the United States, uh, while there's still um, uh, gross flows of migrants from uh, Mexico to the United States, the net flow is now in the other direction. There are more uh, Mexicans going to, in, in recent years, going from the United States, uh, Mexican, former Mexican immigrants to the United States returning than new immigrants coming to the United States. So these flows can be uh, uh, complex, they can be responsive to political and economic developments, and uh, you know, I think there, it is a challenge to all of us to make sure our analysis uh, takes all of this into account. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Please join me. Thank you. Okay, so we can now turn to uh, to our panel debate, and uh, perhaps you want to sit here because you are very much now <laughs> sort of on on the on this side, Jean Piero. Uh, and I'm very very pleased to welcome today uh, 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 Michael Boni, member of the European Parliament. Gian Piero Dallazzona uh, from the Italian Senate, um, uh, Antje Gerstein, Managing Director from the Confederation of German Employers Association, BDA, and Samuel Engblom, uh, Policy Director at the Swedish Confederation of Professional Employees. So I think we have a different sort of set of uh, uh, qualifications, experiences here around the table. And I would like to ask each of you to give an opening statement of five minutes of what you think are the main challenges and how you want to, what you think we should be addressing uh, the issue of, of migration, what are the main benefits, what are the main challenges and how to address these challenges. And then I want to engage a little bit in a debate here on the panel, but also bring in, bring in you from the audience. So, so, so Michael, uh, since you have the last name B. Uh, Boney, you, you, you come first. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, and uh, I think it's very important to discuss uh, all those issues related to, uh, to migration. But, but I think that uh, we need to start and we need to consider in which way uh, we will try to understand the problem. Mm. Because when we are talking about uh, analysis, when we are talking about evidence-based policies, from my point of view, it's clear that after many analyses, we can see the positive results and the benefits of migration. But uh, we are living uh, under the conditions we are living at the time in which evidence-based policies collapsed because of uh, uh, political issues, because of this po populistic vehicle. Yes. And I think that our problem should be how to 
continue our reasonable understanding of migration issues in uh, this new political context. This is the key issue, because it means that, uh, I will try to describe it uh, uh, thinking and, uh, and uh, uh, talking about uh, Polish paradoxes. Uh, uh, I'm from Poland. Uh, Poland uh, entered into European Union in 2004, and uh, the big wave of uh, big flow of migration has started. Uh, it was during uh, the 10 years uh, just about 2 million people. 50% of those people lived in United Kingdom, in Ireland, in Germany, and they have uh, uh, registered officially in 2004. But uh, we need to remember that in Poland we have not also, uh, we have uh, had uh, the baby boom after the Second World War, but also the second baby boom in uh, 70s and in 80s. And it was a big problem for Polish labor market at the beginning of this century. So uh, this migration flow was very important in, in uh, short perspective, in short terms, for improving situation of the Polish labor market. And uh, as it was uh, uh, presented, uh, 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 receiving countries also has uh, uh, had many uh, benefits related to those uh, migration flows. But uh, when we are looking at that situation in the midterm, I think that there are many problems related to uh, shortages of skilled people many skilled people decided to go to, 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 to the West, to European countries. And then when we are looking at the problem of migration in EU due to uh, uh, the principle of free uh, uh, flow of workforce, uh, we can see that from demographical point of view, this is a problem. Because we have lost, uh, we have, uh, lost uh, 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 over uh, uh, one million people, and pr probably, and there are many evidence now that they are started to create their families in, in many countries to have children. So those uh, children are not living in our country and not supporting future demographical problems uh, in Poland. So this is not so, in, uh, as I have mentioned, in the short term, it was very important to improve the situation at the labor, labor market. In mid-term, there are some question marks, and in long term, there are many, uh, many problems. But on the other hand, now we have in Poland just about one million Ukrainian, and they are working. We understand what kind of problems Ukraine uh, uh, has, but on the other hand, they are very needed to the Polish labor market. The unemployment rate in Poland now is 6%. Mm. Okay, we can work and we can have much more active society, active labor force, it's clear. But those people from Ukraine are uh, uh, taking the complementary jobs. So it's very important for our, for our economy. This is the paradox. This is the paradox on the one hand, and I think this paradox is normal that some people are going to the other countries, but the country is open for taking people from uh, 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 the, the new countries. But the problem is, when we are starting the debate on the refugee crisis and how to change uh, this crisis and how, how to be open in Europe on uh, migration flows from, uh, uh, from south, 
this is a problem because uh, this is a cultural problem and populist parties in Poland uh, uh, created the many threats and many fears related to refugees, related to terrorists, related to, uh, uh, to people with uh, 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 different cultures and so on and so on. So this is a new xenophobia. There are many new, uh, 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 there are many accidents, there are many problems with hate speech and also uh, hate uh, behavior. We are not open for people from Syria, uh, but we are open for people from Ukraine. This is a question. They are Ukrainian are, are much more close to our culture? Yes. They are much more close to our language? Yes, they are much more close to our language. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, this is, uh, uh, yeah, because... Poland's very difficult language. Yeah, it's very difficult, but, but uh, uh, many of us uh, learned Very Russian uh, earlier, yes, so we understand those uh, people and they understand Polish because of uh, cultural uh, similarities and common tradition. So this is a question when we try to analyze the specificity of different countries. We need to analyze that those countries have to, uh, uh, should have uh, uh, the migration policy and this migration policy should be oriented at the national labor market issues. But on the other hand, it should be stronger, it is important to have stronger connections with European migration policy and uh, 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 to create possibilities to give some responses for refugee crisis and uh, uh, integration. And this is, I think, uh, uh, will be the second part of our discussion. Okay, great. Uh, let me now turn, I think, to um, Samuel. Uh, you have a microphone. Have okay, great. I think there's one missing. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you. Um, first of all, I, will, I, would, I, I think I should tell you something where, so where I come from. Uh, I come from TCO, which is the Swedish Trade Union Confederation. We are the 10th <laughs> biggest and, and fastest growing trade union confederation in Sweden. We increased by 10% over the past uh, um, past five years, and, and we now represent one, where our affiliates organize 1.3 million members, uh, white collar workers in both the sort of public and the private sector. And, and many of the, they are affected by migration in, in a variety of ways. In, in 2015, where, as Stefano Scapetta mentioned, 163,000 uh, um, refugees came to Sweden. Uh, we could find our members in the entire chain. Some were coast guard, work, coast guard officers working on the Mediterranean, saving people from, from boats that were sinking. We had uh, uh, immigration officials, obviously, policemen, social workers, uh, teachers, uh, public employment <coughs> service uh, personnel, healthcare personnel. So they were really the ones that were affected the most, I would say, in, say, in Swedish society, of the, the, the way, that wave of, of immigration. Then we have other members who work in IT sector companies, uh, Ericsson, Spotify, uh, King, the kind of companies that are very, uh, for their possibility to grow uh, or to stay in Sweden, it's important that they can recruit the best people. And the best people may not be uh, Europeans. They may come from India or from China or from the US. And therefore, we must have a mi labor migration policy that creates possibility for that kind of people to come to Sweden. Uh, and I think from some, so that's sort of the way, sort of where I, where I come from into the issue of, of migration policy. And I think 
Uh, from the morning's presentation, I think it's uh, an important lesson is that we must, that migration is a very diverse phenomena and a different kinds of migration. And, and analytically and politically, we must acknowledge that. We have the humanitarian migration, of course, which I think is what we are being mostly discussed in Europe for the moment. Uh, we have labor migration. And labor migration in itself is divided into a lot of different subcategories. We have free movement of workers within the EU. We have free movement of services within the EU with posting of working being a particular problem. Uh, we have labor migration from countries outside of the EU. We have trade in services. We have WTO rules. We have uh, you know, the discussion about the inclusion of this kind of provisions in TISA and, and, and in and TTIP and CETA, et cetera. Uh, I published a book with some other people last year where we actually have a typology of all these differences. But and I think that they, and the responses, the polar response, policy responses will have, are very different in the different areas. It's important to actually keep these separate when you discuss them. Then we have family reunification. I think family reunification is mainly uh, connected to humanitarian. If you see the, 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 the families that are being reuni uh, uh, reunited, it's usually there is a humanitarian uh, migration in, in, in one end there. Um, from a trade union perspective, I think we should not be, the trade union should never be border policemen. That's not our jobs. Uh, we should. Uh, so I think trade unions should not concentrate on trying to limit the, the inflow of, of workers or limit the free movement of workers. Uh, trade unions should concentrate on equal treatment and on uh, labor market integration policies. And when we look at equal treatment, um, I think that labor market uh, or labor migration programs should be more interested in the working <laughs> conditions and the, the insurances and the, the working time, the wages of labor migrants, than trying to devise the best quota or point system or something like that. We, we should, the important thing is, of course, that you, they, you receive uh, sort of the going rate, the going wage for that kind of, of work. Um, I think the same is true for trade and services. And here the European Union has a, created a very strange situation where on the one hand, if it's free movement of workers, equal treatment is considered a precondition for, uh, for free movement. And when it comes to, to uh, trade and services, equal treatment of workers is, is considered a, an obstacle uh, according to the European Court of Justice. Um, then I think uh, uh, we should also, if you look at other kinds of migrants, not labor migrants, uh, uh, I think it's important for, from a trading perspective to, to make sure that the policy response does not become that we need more low-paying jobs that it can easily, or we should uh, uh, devise schemes where actually migrant workers are directly or indirectly paid less. Uh, I think there, uh, or that we, where we um, make it more difficult for labor migrant to access certain kinds of benefits because I think that will also sort of affect their reservation wage and other things. So there, I think, once again, equal treatment should be one of the pillars of any trade union strategy when it comes to, to migration. Uh, I'm also, uh, I think the enforcement of labor standards is also very important. I think some of these differences that we see between countries, they are actually the effect of uh, differences in labor market institutions. I believe that, of course, if you already to begin with have a labor market which is quite sort of well regulated, where uh, regulation is enforced, it's of course easier to accept to have an inflow of more more uh, uh, migrants, and you can handle that in a different different uh, way. Then, 
uh, we have the, the issue of effective labor market integration policies. And here, once again, and th this, I would say, mainly affects then humanitarian migration and family reunification, because the labor migrants already have a job. So in a sense, like labor migrants, is a very, it's, it's a much easier issue. Um, if we come to, to um, uh, humanitarian and, and family reunification, I think the, 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 uh, we must see that these are very heterogeneous groups. We have, as mentioned, many are low-skilled compared to the country that they come to, but also many are high-skilled. And therefore, of course, there would be not, not, no one solution to fit all of these different groups. You will have to devise different kinds of solutions. If you look at the low-skilled group, of course, there is training, uh, is one. Uh, there is, I think, different kinds of subsidized employment. Uh, we, I think we should be innovative. Uh, we have devised uh, programs, for example, to an idea that we should use temporary work agencies as a way of entering the labor market. I mean, there's this kind of... Uh, um, to facilitate the, intro, in, uh, the introduction into the labor market for lowly skilled migrants. Then we have the highly skilled, and there um, we did a study, or we commissioned a study uh, uh, some years ago that showed that uh, at least sort of in the Swedish context, if you want to use the skills of highly skilled migrants, that you should try to do that from the beginning. You should not just get them into any job. You should get them on the right path to, it's about uh, uh, having their qualifications recognized, top up uh, their, their, their education if they need that, uh, uh, learn relevant language skills and get them into the Swedish labor market. That was the efficient policy. Uh, I, together with some colleagues last year, we looked at the people who are now uh, sort of in the introduction program in Sweden, about 80,000 people, one, more than one fourth of them have a background in a shortage occupation. The biggest problem right now in the Swedish economy is the shortage of labor in certain sectors. And not just the, so the extremely high skill. We're talking building industry, we're talking auto mechanics, that kind of work. And, and there, of course, the, the policy must be to, to, to have these one-fourth of the newly arrived. That's a very high figure. Getting, get them into this job, and these jobs are not into to any jobs. Uh, I think there was a mention before about language skills and the importance of language skills. And I think there, yes, language skills are important, we, but they should be relevant, and they should also be sort of come at a relevant point. Uh, there was a tendency in Swedish policy before to, to concentrate, well, first you must learn Swedish, and then you can enter the Swedish labor market. Uh, I think we are, we are leaving that, and we are leaving that for good reasons. Uh, one example was that in order for, a, for an engineer or, or a, a doctor to um, get into the course at the university that they needed to top up their education. They needed a Swedish that was, that their Swedish must be at a level which was equivalent to a high school um, degree, a sort of secondary education. Uh, so, uh, which turned out to be a, a big obstacle. It was better to mix Swedish and make, have these, some of these courses in Arabic or in English and then make sure that, that the, the, they have the relevant language skills at the end of the process, not as a precondition for beginning the process. And also, of course, in some occupations, if you work in, in, an, in an engineering firm, uh, English might be a more important language than, than, than Swedish in your daily work, if you're going to work at, at Ericsson, for example. Um, then, two final points. I think uh, trade unions at this point, uh, and also we have an important role in, in standing up for, a, for, a, uh, for rational policies. We can see how xenophobic, we have xenophobic political rights, we have mainstream political parties sort of trying to chase the same electorate, but also trying to send a message to migrants saying that, that uh, we have this, this signaling 
where you, 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 short, you, you tighten your, your migration policies and try to send a signal to people, do not even come here, do not even try to uh, seek asylum in, in, in Germany or, or in Sweden or in Austria. Um, and uh, when politicians then need to demo demonstrate their toughness on, on migration or, in worst case, on migrants, uh, they, this happens sometimes through policies that are counterproductive from a labor market perspective. Uh, one example, uh, last year when Sweden switched to, from permanent uh, residence permits as a main rule to, to temporary residence permits as a main rule, uh, one, they would be one or two years long and then they would will always, basically always be prolonged because they, we will not have peace in Syria or Afghanistan or, or Iraq in the next three, four years, right? Um, uh, this means also that the introduction programs will be cut short. You would not plan for the whole full two years. You will plan for one year at a time. And of course, that is, a, is, a, is a not a good, good policy from a labor market perspective. There were also other effects that, made sure that could have, will probably lead to that some uh, high-skilled migrants will go for low-skilled jobs because a low-skilled job can get them a permanent residence permit. And I sat down with the state secretary from the labor ministry and from the justice ministry uh, and, and, and sort of had a long session with them to try and convince them that this was bad labor market policy. And usually I come from a, from, a, from, from a context, from a Swedish context, but labor market participation is really one of the highest uh, policy goals. And it was a, for me, it was a very negative experience to sit down there and realize that here in this setting, migration was actually trumping labor market participation because we all could agree that this was bad labor market policy, but still the government chose to, to do it. And finally, I think it's that there is the, in this situation, also a duty to protect fundamental rights because when we discuss this, it's easy to, we have different kinds of migration and, and, and we, uh, we look at the numbers, but we should of course remember that this the humanitarian migration, the family reunification, it actually comes from fundamental human rights, uh, uh, the right to, to sort of seek asylum when you are being persecuted. And of course, as a trade unionist, I have a self-interest in this because I know that in any fundamental uh, regime, uh, one thing that they do not tolerate is, is uh, free trade unions. And I think we will always come back to that and, and, and remember that now when we put up the, all these practical obstacles to migration that we are doing in Europe, we are also putting up practical obstacles to the ex exercise of, of fundamental rights. Thank you very much. Um, now we've heard the trade unions, so let's, let's hear what uh, German employers associations have to say. I was very pleased with the Swedish trade unions, I must say. <laughs> um, now, uh, um, let me also explain where I come from. I'm from the Confederation of German Employers Associations. Um, and <clears throat> um, what I always observe in, in uh, these kind of discussions is, this is what you said in your, in your introductory statement too, there are so many different notions of what we are talking about. Uh, for me, it was, for example, also uh, really an eye-opener when I understood that if in the UK people talk about migration, they talk about free movement of workers, uh, whereas when we talk about migration or immigration, we talk about third country immigration. And I think even in Business Europe, we spent months in having misunderstandings and, and misconceptions. So this is just one example. And I think you've highlighted there are so many facets and issues. 
Um, to approach this uh, in easy words, um, we as German employers, we always say um, there, in principle, there are those migrants that we need and those that need us. And uh, I, I can tell you that we as German employers were always convinced and have supported the Chancellor in her policy um, because we truly believe that it is our social and human responsibility to accept refugees that have to flee violent and conflict situations. I mean, of course, there were surely issues about communication. Uh, there were surely issues. You, you could have done that better, no question, but the principle and the act as such was always supported by German business. Um, and it was always a very clear commitment to that we have to do everything we can to integrate those refugees. And in parallel, we need a discussion on how to organize labor migration from third countries. Um, and this is about skilled migration. Um, we also had a shift of paradigm. We are not talking about high-skilled uh, migration anymore. We are talking about skilled migration, but uh, it's very clear that this is what we need. Um, just some figures, maybe, and I won't be too long. Um, it is clear now for the German situation that without immigration, the labor force potential would decrease by about one-third until 2050. And at the same time, the share of elderly people who do not participate in the labor market would double in relation to the active workforce. So it's clear that immigration can't stop this demographic process, but it can slow it down quite significantly. And um, we have also found out, and figures show that very clearly, I mean, that's also sort of self-explaining, that the effects of immigration on the labor market and the social security systems depend highly on the qualification structure of the immigrants and their descendants. So what we have observed in Germany is that since 2000, the qualification level of newcomers has risen significantly, and I think one could say we have learned our lesson from the first immigration inflow after, after World War II when the so-called Gastarbeiter came to Germany in the late 50s and later. And there, the, the idea or the perception was always they come, they work, and then they go home again, and they didn't go home. And nobody was thinking about how to integrate these people and their families and their children and their grandchildren. And, um, and, and we sort of suffered very long from the long-term, or partly still do in some big cities, from the long-term consequences of this failed integration policy. Um, then um, GDP, as a consequence, also the income of the local population with this rise of the qualification level since 2000, has also increased through these effects of immigration. And um, also figures show that in the long run, skilled labor immigration has almost no effect on the overall wage level and the unemployment rate. So 
we can't observe social dumping or uh, a decline of wages in uh, at a large scale. I mean, we might have some negative effects in some vulnerable sectors, but uh, not overall for the for the economy. Um, and another figure, I mean, I know this is not new, but it really, it's worth reminding, and I know the OECD has figured, uh, has, has published very interesting figures already years ago. Um, the foreign population currently living in Germany pays more taxes and dues than it receives social transfers. And um, I think when we are talking about public opinion, these are the kind of facts which we need to put much more in the public discussion. Um, now, I think the uh, conclusion of all this is that the success factor of integration of migrants in the labor market is always qualification. Uh, it comes down to qualification, it comes down to a smart system if you want a sort of uh, controlled labor market, labor immigration, you need to define what kind of qualifications the, the, the labor market needs. And if you want to integrate refugees, you need to qualify them. So it, it comes down to this. Um, now, I'm coming back to the uh, refugee issue at the moment in, in Germany. Um, the German business and companies have done in the last year huge efforts to qualify uh, refugees together with our federal um, uh, labor agency. Um, and it is also clear that we shouldn't be naive about the qualification levels. There are not as many qualified among the refugees as has been said in the beginning. Mm. Um, the figures we have is that about 10% are highly qualified, 8% have some sort of uh, vocational qualification, and the rest is hardly qualified. And you can imagine what kind of efforts we need on all levels um, to qualify these people, because indeed we think they, of course, are they came to Germany with a perspective to go back in their countries of origin eventually, but nobody can tell at the moment <coughs> when this will be. So our approach is then we better integrate them. And um, um, but this is a this is a marathon. Uh, it's not a it's not a short distance thing. It's a real marathon. Um, we need language courses, of course. Uh, we have achieved some improvement so that, f for example, now as soon as the status of a refugee is clear, um, after three months is, it's possible to take up an employment. That's a new regulation. We would also, we call uh, strongly for the possibility of using agency work as a vehicle uh, for integration in the labor market. This is why I was pleased with the Swedish trade union because our German trade union doesn't really share our view there. Um, and of course, if we want to um, solve the big problem 
also with regard to populism, politics, we need a European solution. That's very clear. And we need a solidarity mechanism that works. And uh, this is also important, by the way, for our national policies, because if the population has the perception that we are, so to say, um, having the biggest share of all, uh, eventually that is a political problem. So I think it's very urgent to come to a good European solution um, and, a, and a solidarity mechanism that works for all. Thanks. Great. Um, Michael, I want to get you on this question uh, of this EU solidarity in a, in a second, but be, before, uh, so please keep, keep that in mind. But before, of course, I want to give the floor to Gian, Gian Piero, uh, last but not least. So thank you. <coughs> Good afternoon to everybody. Uh, I am uh, Giampiero Dallazuan. I am uh, in the Parliament of Italy, but I'm also a demographer. Then I had to try to put together demography and politics. And it's very difficult because uh, a friend of mine that is a demographer said that, that uh, the demographers uh, look at generations and the futures, whereas politicians usually look at the news of the hate. This is the problem. Then, uh, perhaps, but uh, uh, we have to do so because uh, if you really look at the um, quality of life uh, of the present and of the future, we cannot forget uh, that uh, there is uh, a um, evolution of population that uh, uh, is uh, very important to uh, to look at if you want uh, to. Uh, have the right policies. Uh, the problem of uh, fear and the problem of uh, the um, uh, ghost escape, the problem now is that the, um, the mechanism of ghost, ghost escape is applied to foreigners. It's not the first time in Europe, but now uh, I see mainly my region in Veneto, where there is a, a strong uh, uh, reaction against uh, a number of refugees that are very few, if you look at it in a general viewpoint. But the problem is not that they are few. If the problem is that uh, they are very good for put on their shoulders other problems that are in society. And the problems in the Italian society are mainly the problems that Alessandra Venturini tried to, to say, the problem of unemployment mainly, and also the problem of a disorder in the political situation, the, to change, to... Uh, then uh, it's very good to add something to put... Uh, 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 yes, okay. Then, uh, but uh, Italy, I think, uh, um, need migrants. Need migrants because the uh, demographic situation is dramatic in Italy. Uh, it's dramatic because we are, we have the decreasing population. Hmm? But not only decreasing population, we had a very strong decrease in population at age, at working age. 
we have more or less uh, 3,000 people less each year in, uh, uh, at job age. And uh, uh, this uh, was also from the natural viewpoint in the last years, but in the last, in uh, the, mm, the 20, in the first 10 years of the century, there were, there were the same number of immigrants that uh, the, uh, compensate the decreasing of uh, uh, people at uh, um, working age. But now it's uh, completely different after eight years of crisis. And also the foreigner people try to leave Italy. There are many friends of mine that uh, uh, foreigner people, that they add the nationality, they become Italians, add the citizen, they become citizens of Italy, and uh, immediately after, they go to England. Yes, uh, uh, that's why, to have an example, in the, uh, in the city of San Paolo, San Paolo del Brasile, many people try to, to become Italian citizens, to go to US, or to go to uh, uh, Germany, uh, without visa, you know, that uh, there is this kind of strategy that are terrible for Italy. But if you look at the data on poverty and foreigners, you understand why it happens. Because in Italy there are uh, the, the uh, foreign minors, 65% hmm? is in poverty, 65%, because we have uh, uh, in Italy, welfare is mainly based on the enlarged family. But uh, usually foreign people have not enlarged family. <laughs> they, they are alone when they become unemployed or similar. They have to face uh, the unemployment, but the more easy uh, method to, uh, to face unemployment is to go abroad to go to another, in another country or to come back, to happen, many people coming from Morocco that worked in building sector in Italy, building sector is from 10, ten years, that is in a very dark crisis in Italy, and they prefer to go back to Morocco, because uh, now in Morocco there is a good uh, building sector uh, that is in crisis. This is what's, what is happening now in Italy. In this situation, in this situation, now, uh, in this decreasing uh, uh, demographic uh, um, situation, and another data, uh, all the big cities in Italy are declining population. All but Milan. Only Milan is increasing. But the other, Turin, Rome, Naples also, are decreasing population with a TFR of 1.3. This is the Italian situation now. That uh, in this situation, in this decreasing, in this... Uh, uh, strongly aging, uh, we try as government, uh, to an example, to improve the uh, working sector. And uh, we had in Italy, in the last three years, uh, 6,650, uh, 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 what is? <laughs> what is? Yes, 650. <laughs> 50,000 uh, um, workers more, but they are all concentrated in over 40. Because uh, there was the, we had to reform the pension sector, and uh, we tried to leave people in the, uh, in the working, in the... Um, uh, then, 
for in this situation in Italy arrived the refugee crisis. The refugee crisis that now Italy, we have to remember here because we are in Bruxelles now, we are in the Union. Eh? Now we, have, uh, we are the only country practically where people is arriving with the boats now. Because there was the, we had the, 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 with the Turkey, uh, with Morocco, but Libya is the only door for entering Europe now. You know, in Italy we had uh, 200,000 people last uh, year in, last year arrived in Italy. And uh, uh, Italy uh, had not uh, the habits to add the refugees. Three years ago, we had uh, 10,000 refugees in Italy, and now uh, uh, 200,000. And what can we do in this uh, very difficult situation? I think that uh, uh, there is only one, one road. The one road is to go together with development and migration. Because without development, uh, uh, nothing can happen. But we need also migrations, because without immigrants, uh, we lose the possibility to have a good population in Italy. We cannot have a population that lose uh, this incredible number of people at working age, with the aging. And we are also lucky because we have the higher uh, um, uh, life expectancy in Europe. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's paradox, paradoxal, but uh, uh, we have two, two years of life more than the United Kingdom in Italy at medium level. It means uh, uh, from the pension viewpoint, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy from the pension viewpoint. No, no, but, uh, we have, but then we, 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 we have to sustain this. How can we sustain this? Because we have a very good health system. Very good health systems, also for poor people. And, but can, to sustain this, we need, we need working people in Italy. This is our paradox. But for working people, we have development. We need development and migration. From a mathematical viewpoint, 200,000 people arriving with the boats and arriving in Italy is a benediction. But only from the general viewpoint, from the mathematical viewpoint. But how can we do with them? Italy now is not managing very well the situation. We are, in my opinion, incredible in saving people. We are a system of saving people in the sea that uh, uh, every... Uh, Everybody can recognize that we are working very good, but then we, we need two years to give, to say to people if they, are, uh, uh, they can have asylum or not. Two years is too much, of course. And uh, uh, I don't know in the other countries of, the, of Europe if it is the same, but because we had a very bureaucratic uh, gestion. I think we have to be more pragmatic, and the new government is trying to use a more pragmatic uh, viewpoint to this uh, problem. Uh, first one, uh, okay, 
the other 20, 27 countries of Europe do not want to have our refugees. Only Germany accepted. One, yes, 1,000 1, here. 1,000 here. The other all say, oh yes, we sign, but from the real level point, nothing at all. Then we can ask to, uh, where, to, uh, to the union to have money to manage this. You don't, we don't upset people. Give us money and we manage this situation or not. Second, we try to stop the entrance with a, uh, uh, to go to Libya and try to have a, agree with the people that is in Libya. It's very difficult, of course. But now, perhaps, we can change our approach to Libya. Perhaps we have not to have an approach based on United Nations and so on. Perhaps we have to make separate, agree with the, the, the people that stay in Libya, perhaps. Not also with Libya, but also with Niger, with also with other countries where there is the corridor for people from Africa arriving to, to Europe. And then we have to, to go with, uh, accelerate the procedures and also to increase expulsion. But to increase expulsion, we need Europe because we, we need some uh, agree with the other the countries where the people come from. Uh, and the agree is not of Italy alone with the, the, the countries. It could be, should be also a more extend uh, agree. And uh, the last problem is when people are in Italy, we have to try to accelerate integration and to have a, to have a pragmatic, to have an example. If I have a, a people, an example from my town, a people coming from Guinea, he arrives here, he stay in a uh, community, hmm? the, uh, he work as uh, cookers, because I cook cookers, uh, as cookers. He's a very good cooker. He works for three years, he's a regular as cooker, because it's possible to work as a regular cooker, but after one year, the tribunal told him, you cannot stay in Italy. Why? Why he cannot stay in Italy? He's a good cooker, he don't, uh, uh, he works uh, and is very uh, um, appreciated also by other people and so on, then I think that, uh, and I finish, we need the uh, help from Europe, hmm? but uh, we need also a very a pragmatic national politics to try to solve, it's not possible to solve the problem, but also to manage it in a way that our citizens can understand. This is the, our problem. Uh, thank you very much. I think we've heard uh, four very complementary um, and different perspectives really on, on this very complex topic. Now, before opening to the floor uh, and uh, to the audience, and please all think about uh, what kind of questions you want to ask, I wanted to come back to this issue um, on, uh, on European solidarity. Um, Obviously, um, some in the European Parliament celebrated um, the moment when there was a majority voting uh, in the Council on the distribution of, of refugees, saying, you know, finally, sort of Europe asserts itself, we use our legal, legal means to distribute people. Um, the reality on the ground is that um, 
uh, refugees have not been uh, distributed uh, across the EU on a, on a large scale. Many, for example, still stay on the Greek islands. Um, just if you think about the, the, the Turkish uh, Turkey deal, um, uh, and uh, and of course there. So so I bring in uh, Michael here because or Michael because. Not only you're a member of the European Parliament, so perhaps you were one of those celebrating um, the Federalist moment, but also because you're Polish, and uh, of course the Visegrad countries um, have seen this as a, very much as an assault on uh, on their um, sort of sovereignty. But they've also said quite clearly um, that this policy doesn't work because you know a refugee being displaced from Germany to, to Warsaw will take the next train back to Germany and nobody will control him because we are in Schengen. So I was wondering, can, can you share a little bit sort of your European perspective on it, but also share a little bit the perception from, from Poland and you know what you think uh, would be a manageable policy here on, on the solidarity front? This is not easy to answer because uh, when That's we are asking, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because when we are talking about European policy and uh, European institutions, as European Parliament, European Commission, it's clear that they are involved in the process of uh, opening doors to refugees because of uh, because of values, because of uh, responsibilities. It, it's clear, but the problem is when uh, with uh, our. Uh, legislation and our uh, 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 suggestions uh, are going to the council uh, because in the, uh, uh, at the council level there are uh, many discussions, many debates. Uh, at the end, uh, from time to time, uh, etc., they can achieve uh, uh, the common agreement, but this agreement is not implemented. So this is a problem and it depends on member states. It depends on member states. And this is the real problem of the European Union now. If, if we have European Union, when member states are not ready to create common policies at the areas which are key for the future, uh, future development. And this is the issue of this populism. Because uh, this is not because of uh, uh, Hungary, because of uh, Slovakia, because of Czech Republic, because of Poland, uh, uh, this kind of, of, of threats. The threats are uh, in our societies, but the threats are managing and developing by some governments, also our governments. You remember the September of 2015. It was, there were, there were two issues, two options uh, for Orban in Hungary to go to the border and to try to tackle the problem or to, 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 to sit in the Budapest and say something populistic, ideologic, and be against uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel. After that, take all support from Germany. It was, it, it, this is the reality. So I think that when we want to achieve, I, I, I'm fully for solidarity, I have voted in our Polish group, it was many discussions. I have voted, there were four people from Poland, we have voted for all resettlements, yes? Because I, th I, I think that it is very important and uh, when we are talking about interest, European interest, it's clear that for uh, uh, sustainability and the European labor market, that for the future uh, uh, solving uh, 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 demographical problems, we need migration, it's clear. And we need solidarity in that area. 
But now this is a problem uh, uh, not of uh, finding some uh, uh, practical uh, uh, solutions, because we are discussing about asylum, we are discussing about uh, b better uh, border control, we are discussing about uh, uh, anti-bureaucratic solutions uh, uh, addressed to, uh, 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 to, to refugees. And I think that step by step it will be clear and it will be ready. But on the other hand, all depends on uh, uh, member states' uh, development. And this new political, political phase, this new political uh, uh, vehicle uh, uh, in Europe, so we need to fight with populism. And we need to communicate to our societies how things are going on. I remember uh, at, in, in the mid of uh, 2015, in Poles, in Poland, we have the result uh, um, related to, to, to acceptability of migrants and refugees. Uh, it was just about 50, 50, 59, uh, four. 59, four, some without decision, and uh, 30, 34, 35 against. After political activity, after some speeches, after some interventions, now the results it's, uh, are completely different. It's uh, 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 just about 60 against, and uh, only 30% uh, uh, for be much more open for, for refugees and for, for migrants. So it, it shows us that our, as politicians, responsibility, speeches, communication is very important. So we need to have new narrative, new narrative on the migration policy in Europe, also to tackle the problem related to some fears, but on the other hand, on the other hand to show some interest, because this is our interest to, to, to support and to help refugees, after that to start the uh, transition period from being refugees to being migrants and to, to be legally uh, involved in the labor, in the labor market. Uh, it's not easy, and I think that we will have uh, just about two or three, uh, <laughs> uh, four very tough uh, uh, years in Europe, but it doesn't mean that we should resign. We need to keep our, our values related to solidarity and related to, under, to better understanding our interests on the labor market, also addressed uh, uh, some problems on, on, on demographic issues, as you mentioned, and, uh, and, uh, and labor market. And of course, it's important for me that one million Ukrainians are in Poland. But this is not the argument for Polish government to say, okay, okay we have uh, one million Ukrainians, so we are uh, close for, for, for sharing our responsibility for refugees. I'm not accept my government in, 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 in that area. And, uh, and of course, what does it mean that I'm not accept? I need to fight, politically fight, in my country, as all my colleagues. Okay, I think we, uh, we have some time for some questions, and I see already all the way in the back um, there is a comment, and then you, and then Marek, and then you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Mohammed Rajai Barakat. Uh, Mr. Boni, you said that we are not open for refugees from Syria. Let's be clear. Is no, it no, for. No, he said the opposite. Huh? He said the opposite. He's open to refugees from Syria. I'm open, but my government now. Yeah, is your not government. Open. Your government is not open for refugees from Syria. Is it for religious uh, reasons? 
if you spoke about speak. one million uh, Ukrainians who uh, are working now uh, uh, in Poland, uh, but I can tell you that as a Belgian citizen, uh, we have also uh, uh, thousands of uh, people from Poland who are working here in, uh, uh, in Belgium, who are working also in Britain, in France. You know now, this migration for workers it's normal. It's a healthy phenomena. When you speak about refugees, refugees are obliged to come to your countries, are obliged to leave their countries because of war. We have to make the distinction between refugees and migrants. For Mr. Zwana, you spoke about Libya. Uh, I uh, work a lot with uh, Libyan TVs. I participate with a lot of debates with uh, many Libyan uh, from the opposition. From you know, uh, in their country they have many uh, governments and many. Uh, they have a lot of problems. And when I speak with them about uh, Libya, and, uh, they have a lot of difficulties. They can't. They have no possibility to admit migrants in their countries. Many Africans are coming from four or five countries near Libya, and they stay there, and they want all to go to uh, Europe. Uh, if Europe do not help them, uh, if Europe do not uh, make the, the best so as to help Libya, to, 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 uh, from a humanitarian uh, point of view, uh, the situation in Libya is really very difficult. And uh, uh, you spoke about development. Uh, the EU, the Commission decided, uh, they, they decided to create a fund so as to help African countries to develop these countries. But until now, nothing has been done. Uh, EU spoke about uh, Sofia operation so as to help EPR okay. to, uh, to to train uh, and, and to to uh, um, to help EPR so as to uh, stop uh, migrants. Uh, and not to let them to, to go to uh, Europe. But nothing has been done until now. All these operations are filled. Uh, right. Thank you. Th thank you very much. I think all very, very good questions. But we collect a few <laughs> questions and then come in the end to, uh, to all the panelists. So there's the gentleman here. Thank you. My name is Anastasis Andreu. I live in Brussels. We I see the pragmatics. I see the aging population in Europe. I see the need for workforce. But I also need to say that having a long-term policy of importing workforce is totally unsustainable. Europe has to find its own ways of being sustainable with its own citizens. Now, one, that's one thing. What scares me about, I mean, people will migrate for work all the time. This always happens. It's a global phenomenon. What worries me the most in Europe is the lack of integration of people coming to Europe, especially when they come in large numbers and stay unintegrated and concentrated. And that creates a clear, dangerous leverage from other countries to Europe politics. And I'd say a very, a very dangerous, um, how to say, demographic change, also because of religious pressures, because of political pressures. We've seen what happened in Germany the last few months with the network of uh, foreign spies spying on a certain number of immigrants with the, with, the, with the ability to change their political views. This is really crucial. So we have enough experience from the past 
hundreds of years that we practice immigration in Europe, we have enough experience to have at least a formula of how we can integrate and how many we can integrate and for, from specific regions, but we're not doing this. I think this is really important. And um, I, I agree with some things spoken earlier that we need to start developing or helping develop the neighboring countries. And we simply cannot expect people in need to go through this ordeal to come to Europe because we accept them in Europe. This is incredibly inhuman. If we, need, if we want to bring people in Europe, we go where the problem is and we bring them. We don't expect them to go through these incredible journeys from country to country, switching IDs, not being able to know who they are until they finally manage to come to Europe. And an example for this is Canada. They went to Syria, they selected who they can integrate, and they took them to Canada. We expect them to go through, I can't imagine what, losing parents, mm -hmm. losing organs, whatever, through illegal acts to come to Europe. So I think I will sum it up here. Great. Thank you. Then there's a question here to the, to the right. Uh, thank you, Professor Linson, for the MNRC. Um, very quickly, uh, regarding integration, well, the uh, solution, well, I've been invited some time ago by a senior policy officer to, uh, at the Commission <coughs> to set up a work plan as the integrator to explore how to constructively integrate all the disconnected and fragmented action plans, roadmaps, uh, research programs, sustainable development goals, I'm referring to uh, DG uh, Common, and um, um, other um, work plans together to achieve policy cohesion. Uh, short comment, if I may. Um, I've, I feel uncomfortable when I'm listening to you. It's, I'm not uh, directing this at the panel. It's just that we saw the difficulties of migration coming and here we are whining, whining, because no one knows what to do. It's exactly the same problem with, uh, concerning the environment. And uh, regarding education, I still have the impression that we are missing the point entirely. I have the impression that the human being is still sleepwalking to his doom. I wanted to ask David a question when he took the, the floor. I mean, I think that we are forgetting the finality of education, of innovation and research. What is the finality of education, research, and innovation? Um, well, considering the increasing world instability and violence, the seriousness of the environmental issues, perhaps the finality of education, of innovation, and research should, should be to find a means to defuse the world ticking time bomb that is threatening our civilization and planet, and to achieve and sustain the citizens' well-being, quality of life, and world society. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, then Marek. I have the question to Michal Boyn, but uh, perhaps also to other uh, panel members. Let's assume that we can allocate uh, much more money for refugee policy, mainly adaptation of, of refugees, the training, etc. European budget. I abstract now from whether it is feasible or not, but, but do you think that it could change the logic of political game in individual member states, especially the states like, like countries like uh, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia with the populist leaders? Because I, I can assume that perhaps in, 
if we would be available more money for mm. European policies in European budget, then it could activate some, some uh, political forces, even in these countries, on local government, regional government, who would be interested to, to, to engage in such policies. Now it's largely unfunded European mandate, refugee migration policy, very much dependent on, on goodwill of individual member states and their financial resources. Okay, Herr Geistert noch? Kurt Geisert, uh, Association of German SMEs. I liked your example as a member of the Italian Senate about Morocco, that people from Morocco are leaving uh, Italy because the building sector is declining uh, in Italy and it is rising in Morocco. I never heard that, and uh, is it not a sign of hope? And should the European Union not even do more to make it possible that more examples like this exist? Thank you. Okay, so, so I think we have a rich set of questions and um, I, I think we, uh, we go in reverse order, if, if that's okay. So um, you, would, you would start, you, the last question was also addressed to you and you, uh, you have the last word then. <laughs> okay, please. I, I begin, yeah? Yeah, please. Ah, okay. Yes, uh, thank you very much for the questions. Uh, first, problem of Libya. Of course, uh, we, I don't say that people have to stay in Libya coming from all Africa and go there and stay there. Obviously, it's not a solution and it's a, it's a terrible situation would be. But if people know that the only system to come to Europe is to arrive to Libya and to try to start with the boat, people go to Libya, of course. Then we have, if they know that it's not possible to leave from Libya to come to Italy, Perhaps, uh, I hope, use, they will not go in this uh, incredible number to Libya. Now we are speaking about about one million people now in Libya waiting for starting for go to Italy and to go through Italy to Europe because they don't want to stay in Italy. They want to go to Italy to try to go to Europe. Then Europe have to try to they take this uh, uh, situation and uh, try to understand what uh, he want to do. Also because uh, uh, it's uh, wrong to think that we need only skilled migrants. Uh, and uh, this morning we say this. We need also unskilled migrants. I, I think you know the, uh, the, the book, uh, The New Geography of Job. It's a book published in the United States by Moretti, that is an Italian professor working in Berkeley, if I remember. And uh, uh, he calculated that in California, for each two skilled jobs created in the last years, there were five unskilled jobs. Because uh, the new society is not a society only of engineers, on the um, skilled people, of people here sitting here uh, uh, speaking about migration. But there are also people that stay at our home, taking care of our father and our mothers, and people uh, gathering uh, in, in California the, uh, se dice salata? Uh, the salad eh? <laughs> and the salon. And all these people. Uh, uh, our society needs these people 
and they want to make that job, they want that their children go to school, and want their children become the new major of London. <coughs> that, this, that's, uh, this is migration. Migration is, uh, migration is social mobility. This is a really, and if migration can be social mobility, it becomes an integration history. That's what we need in Europe. We need that people that come in Europe can have a chance to play their game of social mobility. And it is the, my answer to the, uh, who answers something about integration. And uh, the solution is what to say this morning, Scarpetta, in his speech, eh, is uh, that people have to uh, go and to, to come to Europe, to, to, to take a job, and that their children can go to school and can uh, improve the, their, their, their situation. Uh, the last, uh, uh, money. Of course, ma money are useful. To have an example, now in Italy, now in Italy, no, uh, because uh, there uh, <laughs> yes, money is also useful, of course. Uh, money are not all, but uh, something, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, to an example, now in Italy there was a, a decision of the government to give uh, to the municipalities that uh, have um, uh, asyl, uh, asylum seekers in their, um, in their territory to give uh, 500,000, 500 euros per, for, for people. Not for migrants, but for the, for the municipality. You know, then uh, the Italians have the idea that uh, having people in their uh, territory is good also for people for people that lives uh, here for Italians. It's a uh, it's something. Of it's not all, of course, but uh, we need uh, that our uh, citizens have the idea that uh, this uh, that immigrants. Uh, Mainly the uh, asylum seekers can be a resource for the for the uh, for the country, and but this can be also if uh, uh, we take seriously the fear of the people. We have to take seriously the fear of the people. We have not to say we have not to have fear. If I fear, I fear and stop. It's not possible to to say then to. To take it seriously, it means that, to have an example, now in Italy we try to change the narrative of these things, beginning from the, the security. We have to, to, to start from that because the people need it. And then when people understand, ah, perhaps security is preserved, then all the other can be, uh, can be accepted. Okay, so I think next um, <clears throat> is you, you Antje, um, and perhaps you can especially look at the question that the gentleman uh, um, over there made uh, about, you know, the difference in the immigration policy that Canada had, where Canada was going to Syria, selecting the people um, it wants, essentially, for the labor market. Based on uh, vulnerability criteria. Based on vulnerability, that, uh, <laughs> you add that from, from Canada. <laughs> Um, while um, uh, sort of um, the, the immigration wave to Europe um, that we have experienced in the last two years was, of course, much more random and uh, uh, partially based on real, cru really uh, cruel uh, uh, 
trafficking and and so on and so i mean i i guess that's related more to the german government but 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 um, perhaps your perspective on that and if you could also share a little bit more uh, of your thinking you said you do a lot of effort in terms of really integrating people in the labor market can you say a little bit more about how successful you are and how, how what is the experience so far after uh, perhaps a year or so, how much do you really know about how, how, how well you can, can get people into the labor market? Yeah, thank you. Um, first of all, I have to ask, because I'm not sure I understood, you had three points, and the first one, I'm not sure if I understood it correctly, was Europe needs to sustain itself, something like that, or... More children, so to say. <laughs> okay, because I think, I mean... Yeah, I think because I think I think that is a, that is a, that is an approach that you can't solve politically. I mean, you can't. You know that that's another huge and complex issue about family policy and how our sustain, uh, societies are organized. And, and I, don't, I don't think you can impose children. No, but let me say on this point, I mean, there, it's not that there is no, uh, that we don't know anything about demographics and reproduction patterns. I think there is OECD research. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. OECD research, and it is quite clear, for example, that in modern societies, um, childcare facilities are a very strong determinant of how many uh, children a woman will have. So, 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 so that's another conference but we can a, have. But I do think it's yeah. it's actually an important topic. Uh, how do we change demographics? And we shouldn't pretend that it cannot be but, influenced at all with public policy. It I, can be influenced, but you have to have the right public policy. But, but it's for a different. I, I think this is sorry. why. No, no. But I think sorry. this is yeah, why so. I asked because I I think I mean I completely get your point, but I think it doesn't help in the discussion on migration policy because um, because. I think migration is a very natural phenomenon. If you look on a global scale, you will always have migration and you will always have people from poorer regions striving for better living conditions in regions where there is a better living and, and, and better perspective. So I think, and, and this is probably something where Europe has also or needs a change of paradigm and and it was forced it was it was forced by the situation 2015 to produce this change very quickly too quick probably for the societies but um, but the migration is a phenomenon that won't go away it won't go away if we have enough childcare facilities i don't think so so that that's that's my answer to your to your first point then um of course i mean i completely agree that these terrible journeys that refugees have to undertake to arrive to europe are are terrible but i i must say i don't i don't really have an answer i 
I don't know if the Canadian approach is one that works. To me, it also seems, I mean, it probably is a better way to save people from these journeys. But if I imagine that on a large scale, European governments selecting the people that they want in the poor countries, that doesn't seem very human either. So I, I but I'm just, that's a very personal answer. I, I, I don't have an answer to that, but I agree, I fully agree that we have to find ways to, to find better uh, passages for the people that strive for better living and that have to flee conflict situations and have to save their lives. I, I, I fully agree. Um, and then on the integration, I also agree, and that's what I said before. Uh, in Germany, we have a very painful experience with failed integration in the 60s, so I, I, or in the 70s. By the way, the Italians were obviously the group that was the most difficult to integrate <laughs> because they stayed very much in their own communities. This is what you said before. So, um, uh, but I think we have learned our lessons. We, I, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm not saying we are there yet. Um, there's still a very long way to go. And then I would like to take up another point that is also maybe an answer to what you said. We saw it coming. Um, and also what you said. At the moment, we have a real implementation crisis in the member states. It's not, an, it's not a crisis of EU policies. We have to say that the EU has delivered... I mean, all the proposals are on the table and, and the member states just don't implement. And this is something that hasn't really happened before. <laughs> so this is also a new situation. And I think this, this is why we have to work very much towards our own governments to, you know, uh, force them to implement what's what's on the table and what has been decided so um, and uh, we will face this kind of implementation crisis also in other policy areas it's it's uh, and and that is a huge risk for the entire EU at the moment if if member states don't feel uh, committed to uh, European decisions, then we have a serious problem. So that, that's uh, that would be my answer to we saw it coming. Yes, we did, but and the policy answers on European level were there, but the member states didn't implement. Please, yeah. Yeah. <coughs> and there's a microphone. I I'll try and take three points that somehow would, would respond to, to several of these of these questions. I think first there was raised the question, well, shouldn't we help people where they are? Wouldn't that be more efficient? And I said, yes, definitely we should, we should work with conflict prevention. We should work with development. We should make sure that those of our trade policies, which is a European prerogative, a EU prerogative, that are actually detrimental to the development in, in the developing world. So we're talking about agriculture, for example. They should be changed, definitely. Um, but I think... Even if we would do all that, that doesn't, we still have a responsibility. If you look at countries like Lebanon, for example, uh, that have uh, Jordan, which have taken a lot of, of, of course, of refugees from, from the Syrian crisis, uh, of course, I think we, 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 sh we must acknowledge that, that, that we have, so other countries also have a responsibility. Um, 
And also, I mean, this, I think geographic proximity matters. And if we have conflicts close to Europe's borders, I think people will come here. And then the question is, of course, how will we provide the best uh, solutions in that situation? Uh, Stefano Scarpetta, I think, was very, in one of his slides, said that what Europe is, um, suffered in 2015 was a coordination and solidarity crisis. And I myself have been very careful never to talk about a mig migration crisis, because there was no migration crisis. There was a political crisis. It was political failure that caused a, a sort of a strained situation in the, sort of, uh, in, the, in the reception system of some member states. Uh, and not that many member states, because as very many member states actually avoided to take their, their responsibility. And also, I mean, I, I, have, uh, I work for a trade union confederation with a lot of people who worked in this reception system. And I can tell you it was not that they were not the ones who said that we've had enough. It was the politicians who said that they had had enough. What the trade unions and their members in this sector said, give us the tools, give us the resources, we can sort this out. And so the, sort of the closing of the, of the Swedish borders in, 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 two, in, in late 2015, which actually uh, very much a political measure. Uh, and of course, you can discuss for, of course, it, obviously it was not sustainable to have 10, 10 to 15,000 people come every week, but, but still this, this total closure was, was a different story. Uh, so I definitely believe we cannot just say that, well, we should help people there. And also, I think a lot of the people who say that, the politicians who say that, then if you, if you look at their, their budget proposals, it's not that they have increased the development aid uh, exponentially. Um, the second uh, point, my second point would be about integration. This, we're talking about, well, can we integrate this many people? Aren't they culturally too different? To, to integrate. I think that this sort of metaphysical notion of integration is very dangerous. To me, integration is something practical. Uh, uh, one of the things that the Swedish government, the, the current Swedish government, uh, uh, which I think do some good things and do some, some bad things, that they did, they abolished the integration minister. I think that was a very wise decision. Because if a person who's born in another country does not have a job, to me, that is a problem of, of labor market policy. If that, if, that we have a, if that person have a different difficulties finding an apartment, well, we have a problem of housing policy, not of integration policy. If that person commit a, commits a crime, that's a problem of criminal policy. It's not an integration policy. It's not, I think we should be really careful with discussing these, uh, oh, are the cultural differences and there, because as we said, we always said that. We said that about the Italians who came, there's labor migrants also to Sweden uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the 50s and 60s. So I think that's a very, it's, it's a very dangerous argument. It's also arguments that tend to, to pitch people against each other because it's a, very, it's a way, it's a part of the narrative creating it, us and them. So I think it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's, it's politically very dangerous and it's practically misleading because then you will have people working on integration issues instead of having the labor market experts doing labor market policy, the housing expert doing housing policy, the education uh, experts doing, doing education policy, uh, etc. So I think that it's an important thing that we, we, we sort of separate these things from another, that integration does not become some kind of cultural metaphysical thing. Uh, then one of the gentlemen in the back said that, that there's, well, no one knows what to do. Well, I believe there are plenty of people who knows a lot of things that we you know. If we look at the, I mean, the OECD was here this morning uh, discussing, they have a lot of, they've done a lot of research, there are a lot of proposals. If we, uh, as Stefano also said, if you look around the EU member states, we can find many examples of policies that are working 
where, uh, and I think, uh, and of course, not all of these policies will work in order. You can just transplant them from one person to another. But there's a lot of work being done. But this, I think, also we should acknowledge that this, the work that's I'm being done. Uh, only global perspective, okay. Uh, but the, I, think the, the, I think then what we should look for is maybe not the big global solution, but these, these, the local practical. Because what the things are doing, uh, I mean, people are going to, be, to, to find a, a house in a, in, a, in a community, in a certain city, okay. We should show the housing situation there. You have to come to a workplace. Well, okay, so how does it, our introduction system look? These kind of practical things. And I'm very happy to say that if you look at the social partners in, in many European countries are working hard on this, and I look at our, a lot of our the members of our affiliates are out there working with these kind of things on a day-to-day -day basis. I think it's important sort of to sometimes leave the big rhetoric in, in that debate and go down to the nuts and bolts of the, the actual sort of policy implementation process. So how do we get people into, into work? How do we make sure that the second generation do not perform worse in, in schools than, 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 sort of, than they should? Uh, how do we make sure that, that, sort of the, uh, that we provide the, the opportunities uh, uh, also to people? In, and, and, sort of, and then there's, I mean, the, I want to see the social research that constantly compares the outcomes of, of different, different uh, policies in order to, to for us to know what we do. Last, last word, please. Last word. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I need to add something uh, because I, I think that we, we need to remember about it. In 2015, uh, when uh, uh, this new process and this refugee crisis has started, we also experienced in Europe uh, uh, new terrorist attacks. And I think that we need, we need to understand the coincidence of, of, of this for people, for societies. And I think that many fears, many threats related to migrants, related to refugees, are related to the threats uh, of, of, of terrorism, uh, the lack of security. So, so th this is very important because it's not justification. It's not justification. It's only for explanation, yes, because we need to remember that uh, when we are talking about uh, 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 about our societies, very often people are saying, okay, we don't want refugees because we don't want to, to have uh, 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 terrorists in our countries, yes? This is stereotype, I know, but it exists, and we need to, we need to tackle this problem. Second point is related to the differentiation between refugees and migrants. Because uh, it's very important when we are talking about migration policy, it's much more clear. When we are talking about refugees, we need to remember that there are women, children. So it's very important to have uh, pro-refugee policies and decisions because it's not only uh, uh, oriented, it, it's not only focused on, 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 on work for people, it's also uh, uh, should be uh, aimed for uh, supporting families, supporting children, organization of education. This is, uh, this integration in this sense, in this meaning, yes, much more broader. So this is very important. And also to, to give them, uh, to, 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 to children, to give them possibilities to, uh, 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 to learn a uh, uh, new language and so on and so on and and, and the last point uh, uh, and the last point is is uh, it was a question uh, uh, on Syrians in, in in Poland you know I, 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 there were some 
information and there were some announcements in Poland that, that from government and for people related to government that we will be much more open for Christians from Syria. So it's, it's not the solution, it's not the solution, yes. And I think that this is a question of differentiation of the area of culture and religion. And, and we need to work on it, yes, but it's clear. And when we are talking about Syrian and uh, Ukrainian, it's much more, clear, it's much more, much more easier to, uh, to Polish people to, uh, also uh, under this propaganda uh, uh, to, be, to be open for, for Ukrainians. But, but, but yeah, yeah, because you know, we are living and our cultures are uh, 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 joined many centuries. Two cultures, totally different. Yeah, but we need to remember about traditions. We need to remember about traditions, yes? Uh, because uh, people from, uh, from Africa, people from Arabian countries uh, uh, appeared in some countries in, the, in, in Europe. Uh, I, uh, I don't remember because I was, uh, I was too young, but in some month, in, two, in, two, in 1962 or 63, there were uh, one million people from Algeria because of the war, yes, in France, yes. So it, it was also the refugee crisis, as, as we can say, uh, in modern language. So th there are many problems. We are not open for, 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 for those people. I'm not saying that I'm not open. I'm not saying that 50% of society is not open, but, but, but now the, the, the decisive uh, points are in, in uh, uh, the, the decisions are in different, uh, in different hands. And the last point uh, and, and question related to money, uh, there are some incentives in, in this policy for, for refugees uh, uh, for the country. Uh, you will take a refugee and you will have some money for this integration policy. So I think that, uh, unfortunately, it's not working at that, it's not working at that area. So, so we need to, to, to create this narrative, as I have mentioned earlier, uh, uh, oriented on, uh, on the future and, and showing our interest, uh, uh, all Europeans in all countries, because, you know, we are all migrants, yes? My, uh, uh, 200, uh, 200 years ago, my, my, my grand, grand, grand uh, <laughs> parents lived, I have Italian name, in Italy. Uh, and my father was born in St. Petersburg. Uh, after some years in, in, in Poland as uh, small bourgeois and something like that. Uh, uh, I'm, living, uh, I'm living in Poland. My brother decided under the martial law at the beginning of 1981 to go to United States and uh, uh, he's uh, he living in the United States and my nephews are uh, American uh, citizens. So, so I, I think that in many countries there are this kind of examples and we need to be much more open and to, to analyze all of those issues related to migration, to refugee crisis as opportunity, to analyze some threats to analyze many barriers, but to show some opportunities and, so, and also to have new communication to our societies. Okay, um, I, I'm afraid we have to close and you, you, you can uh, ask bilateral questions afterwards. So, so please thank me, uh, join me in thanking uh, all the panelists, uh, thank the colleagues from the IMF that have uh, co-organized this conference and thank you to everybody.